At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Kylie Watson. I'm Jack Izzo. Jack, welcome to the show. Hey, yeah, Woo! so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited. Uh, listeners, Jack is a, uh, a recent graduate of PopSci's internship program. Uh, but Jack, why don't you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I don't even know where to start. Like, I am from Southern California, and I am a senior currently at Northwestern University. I am like what, like one month, two months away from graduating, <laughs> which is terrifying. So employers, uh, feel free to reach out. I am still looking for for employment opportunities. Uh, but yeah, last in, in the winter, I was um, interning at Popular Science, uh, writing a bunch of cool scientific stories and stuff. Uh, and one of the stories I wrote was just like so interesting. And not to, not to, I fell into a hole put a pin in that, we'll come back to it. Wow. In intriguing. I wonder what it could possibly mean. I'm excited. Um, okay, let's get into it. So on the way to Island this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, etc. And then decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah Kylie, what's your tease? So my tease is I'm here to talk about the girl boss behind this kitchen essential. Oh, oh bye. Not even telling us which kitchen essential. Oh, you'll you'll find Leaving out us very on soon. Tender hooks, great. Okay. <laughs> um, I just want any excuse to use the phrase on tender hooks. Um, <laughs> Jack, what's your tease? Um, my tease is the like complete opposite of the space <laughs> race. It's still a race, but in the opposite direction. Ooh. <laughs> a race to the bottom. Relatable. Um, awesome. Okay, so my tease is that uh, I want to talk about a mysterious disease outbreak that left people so 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 sleepy which is very relevant to my life at this time <laughs> sound sounds like yeah. every disease to me <laughs> yeah that's, that's true, true. I that feel is like... kind of um that that is kind of the point ultimately Ooh. so i can mm? I, I can what? get started with um some some sleepy sleepy stories um yes this is now a sleepy time podcast um <laughs> just uh weird epidemic weird plague asmr which is basically what my tiktok channel is this is a story i've talked about on my tiktok before so um if if you follow me there uh sorry now you're hearing it here too but you can follow me at rachel feltman and honestly right now i'm not really posting anything on tiktok but uh you know if you want me to do stuff like this on there let me know and maybe i'll do it so um i'm gonna start by referencing the graphic novel uh, and Netflix series Sandman, um, where, as one aspect of the plot, the world is struck by this mysterious plague called the Sleepy Sickness. 
um, and it leaves sufferers in this fairy tale like slumber for decades at a time. And believe it or not, this spooky, sleepy sickness is based on a very real outbreak of disease uh, that happened during the early 20th century. And it's one that scientists don't actually fully understand to date. Ooh. Yeah, very, very spooky. So as you can probably guess, uh, in real life, this sleepy sickness did not actually strike millions of people simultaneously, like in the course of one night. Um, but the truth is only like slightly less unsettling in my opinion. Um, so this disease, which in extreme cases can cause victims to fall into a coma-like state, uh, spread through the world for more than a decade starting in late 1916, and it affected at least a million people during that time. And uh, it's called encephalitis lethargica. And the scariest thing about it is that we're still really not sure exactly what it is. And oh, lovely. Yeah, <laughs> we love that. And we know it's shown up in, in like epidemic proportions, or at least we think it's shown up in epidemic proportions more than once throughout history. Oh, geez. Yeah, yeah. And just for any listeners uh, wondering, this is not the same as sleeping sickness that you get from a, a tootsie fly. Um, that was something that some of my TikTok viewers were like, we already know what this is. It comes from a fly. And no, different thing. but Different sleepy sickness. Yeah, different, different sleepy sickness. Um, but, you know, fair question. So encephalitis lethargica was first formally described by a Dr. Constantin von Economo from the University of Vienna uh, in the winter of 1916. And he was treating like a glut of new patients who were presenting with neurological symptoms. Um, and they'd been admitted with like all sorts of different diagnoses. There were people diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is uh, an autoimmune disease where the body attacks brain and nerve cells. Um, there were people who had been diagnosed with meningitis, which is the inflammation of the membrane that protects the brain and spinal cord. Um, and there were even people who had just been diagnosed with delirium, which was just like a generic term for uh, severe mental confusion caused by fever, intoxication, or like question mark. But the thing is that the one thing that these patients all had in common is that none of them perfectly fit the profile of the diagnosis they'd been given. And Vaughn Economo noticed that they all seemed to share a profound lethargy or lack of energy. Uh, so in early 1917, he published this paper proposing that all of these cases might actually be an example of one new disease that he dubbed encephaloidus lethargica. And here's some some spooky stuff. Just a few days later, a French physician named René Crochet published his own paper, totally independent of von Economo, making the same claim. I don't think he literally came up with the same name for it, but he was also like, all these patients don't quite fit their diagnoses. And the one thing they have in common is this really profound lethargy. So what's going on? And uh, yeah, other scientists kind of followed along after. There were ones that suggested that this strange sickness uh, could have actually been the cause of like numerous unexplained historical epidemics, um, which kind of is still an open question, but it was something that people were already talking about at the time. So like you're saying that like, Sleepy sick. This this particular sleepy sickness could have been like other things in the past, in addition to this particular outbreak of sleepy sickness. Right, right. So there were okay. scientists saying, you know, look at this time in history when you know some medieval monk said 
and everybody got super tired. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm like confused about is like, d- so like uh, people have just been getting tired randomly for a very long time, it seems like, or at least that's the way, like, like, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know, maybe if I'm a monk in medieval Italy or France or whatever, my first thought is not immediately like, man, why are people so tired? <laughs> but yeah, listen, evidently, uh, you know, your perusal of the historical record may vary, but scientists <laughs> were like, they were, they were curious. They were like, what if this is something that has kind of periodically cropped up for reasons we don't quite understand? And what if it's like, you know, one cause of potentially like really mysterious sort of waves of weird symptoms that just like happen and then everyone's like well that was weird that that happened maybe it was satan you know (laughs) etc yeah um (laughs) right right and so so to get into what encephalitis lethargica actually looks like um the answer is that it varied a lot um it, it may not have just been one thing but what these scientists and doctors were talking about was uh an illness that generally started with a gradual onset of vaguely flu-like symptoms, um, like a low-grade fever, a sore throat, chills, aches and pains, all of that. Uh, but then there were also neurological symptoms, uh, including partial paralysis in some people, or spasms, or eye problems, or confusion. Some patients might be manic and have hallucinations and like uncontrollable twitches and vocalizations. Uh, and then start sleeping all day and being restless all night, while other people would just be generally drowsy and confused all the time. Um, In rare cases, patients would go totally stiff with like rigid limbs and a mask-like expression, uh, though they remained aware of what was happening around them, at least in some cases that we were able to, you know, learn more about later. Um, And all of these symptoms could show up and evolve really rapidly in someone who otherwise just seemed to like have a a cold or the flu. Um, There's one case study of a young patient who developed um, hemoplegia, which is paralysis on one side of the body while she was walking home from a concert. So she had been fine. She'd gone to a concert. She suddenly can't feel half her body. Um, She fell asleep within the next half hour and she died less than two weeks later. Um, So that's like a pretty extreme case. But that was kind of the like um, that that was like the textbook encephalitis lethargica that they were like, this is something is happening. And then there are a bunch of people who have like more mild stuff going on. um, And what if this is all one thing? And yeah, patients who survived those initial symptoms Um, weren't necessarily out of the woods. Anywhere from a few days to a few years later, some of them would develop chronic disease symptoms that were really similar to uh, Parkinson's. And in addition to slowed movements and body rigidity and tremors, many of them also experienced sleep disturbances, uh, involuntary movements, and psychiatric problems. So hallucinations and mania were were pretty common. Um, Intriguingly, the medical literature also mentions joviality and excessive puns, which what <laughs> excessive which, puns, which I'm not sure really Best belongs in the same. symptom I've ever seen ever. Yeah. Like, so you sure. turn into Santa Claus. Um, you're jovial and making yeah. little elf jokes. Okay, I, I'm not sure I would personally put that into the same list of symptoms as like psychosis affects a third of patients. But uh, this was the early 20th century, so medicine was. Um, 
a barrel of monkeys. I mean, joviality like vaguely makes sense for mani- mania. Sure, but yeah, like, yeah. Excessive it's- puns. That's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. It's, it really feels like that was just one doctor with one patient who was really getting on their nerves. Um, right, but now right. it's in the, the historical record forever. Yeah, and there are some like pretty graphic and and disturbing um, instances of. Uh, self-harm in, in people who had encephalitis lethargica, um, including in children. Um, I won't get into the details because they're pretty gory, uh, but that is something that uh, people can find more information about um, if they are someone who also goes on dark Wikipedia spirals. Um, and let's just say that Neil Gaiman definitely took a lot of thematic inspiration <laughs> from the real world uh, illness. Um but what's interesting and kind of creepy, in addition to all previously discussed creepy stuff, is that some researchers don't think that encephalitis lethargica, like the flu-like stuff and the paralysis and the sleep problems, actually caused those later chronic symptoms that oh. you know looked like Parkinson's or hallucinations yeah. or mania, um, but simply made them more likely to emerge. So there are some cases of similar symptoms in people who had something like the flu, but never had the typical symptoms of acute encephalitis lethargica, um, which brings us to what we think caused it. Um, So when scientists were first identifying encephalitis lethargica, they were also gearing up for and then like really in the thick of the so-called Spanish flu which listeners know from my episode about uh, why radiators are so hot, um, (laughs) did not actually start in Spain. Uh, The earliest documented case was in Kansas with others following in France, Germany, and the UK. But all of those countries were involved in World War I, so their governments didn't want newspapers talking about a surge in flu cases uh, because that would make them look vulnerable. And Spain was neutral, so they were like, yo, there's a flu happening and so the name stuck um but the spanish flu was a really horrible outbreak it infected hundreds of millions of people around the world and killed tens of millions um and in particular uh you know was quite deadly in otherwise young healthy people um so this coincidence in timing um made it uh, a pretty common assumption that the flu had something to do with this terrifying new illness Uh, Some scientists thought the flu caused it directly. Um, Other people thought it made people more vulnerable to other infections by weakening their mucous membranes, which is totally a thing that happens. Um, And one of the many reasons you shouldn't run around unmasked in indoor spaces because you just have a cold, because having a cold makes you more likely to catch something nastier. You baboon. I don't know. I was going to (laughs) say Well, this is rude to baboons, but I couldn't think of a something to say to people who do that that wasn't too mean. Anyway, um, so a few modern studies have supported this connection. Others have refuted it. Um, no one has found another virus or bacteria to explain the infection, though. And to complicate matters, there were some cases during that early 20th century outbreak that made it seem like the condition itself was contagious, like symptoms would sweep through schools or households um, and like kill several people in rapid succession. But then other reports show families living in very close quarters and just like one child got sick and everyone else was fine. 
Um, so again, like some of this may be due to just sort of like panic and and people sort of um, seeing patterns where there weren't any and, you know, that kind of bias in what got written down. Um, but the fact is we just like don't have enough information to like really get into the epidemiology of that um, that big outbreak. Um, recently, researchers have suggested that encephalitis lethargica could be an example of an autoimmune disorder. So that's when the body reacts to a perceived threat by attacking its own tissues. Um, and that is one possible explanation for long COVID symptoms and other post-viral syndromes like uh, myelagic encephalomyelitis or ME, which was previously known as chronic fatigue syndrome, which I actually have um, in part as a result of long COVID. So um, can confirm you get real sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of weird other stuff happens too. It's pretty serious. Um, can be seriously disabling. Um, not a n no joke. But because there aren't many samples of tissue from confirmed encephalitis lethargica patients, uh, there just isn't much good like replicated research on its possible causes. Um, but again, it's like we're kind of swirling around this idea that it's it's like a post-viral autoimmune response, which is something that scientists were definitely interested in, but sort of was in this like realm of like, well, is that real or is that just what we decide people have when they keep complaining and we can't find anything else wrong with them? And, um, you know, a, a lot of research on long COVID is, is making scientists re-examine that and be like, ah, turns out actually viruses and bacterial infections can just mess you up forever. Um, so given how little we know about encephalitis lethargica, how can we be sure it won't come back? Um, great question. <laughs> Scientists have argued that this is a condition that could resurge due to another pandemic um, and that we should still be working to improve our understanding of it. And, you know, one could argue even if it's not exactly the same thing, that is kind of what has happened with COVID. You know, we're seeing the impact of um, our very poor understanding of post-viral um, fallout. And, yeah, because like COVID, yeah. like, or COVID and I think other viruses can like pass the blood-brain barrier, right? Yeah, so it's like totally. it can get into the brain. And so like, I don't know, I feel like it makes sense that like, if you can get an infection in the brain or like if the, if the virus can make its way into the brain, you know, like there might be some residual damage from from fighting that virus. Just like, I don't know. Totally. The, 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 the white blood cells targeting the wrong thing or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when, you know, a lot of long COVID research is, is looking at inflammation in the brain specifically um, as maybe being the cause of, of some of the long-term damage that we see. And there have been a handful of reported one-off cases of encephalitis lethargica since the 1930s, um, but most of those diagnoses are considered controversial and might have been due to other kinds of, of brain inflammation. The, the symptom profile of encephalitis lethargica itself isn't so wild, like your brain having severe inflammation can do all of those things and more. It was more the like sudden surge of cases that that made it seem like its own thing. Um, so because we know so little about this illness, we also don't know of any particularly effective treatments or cures for it. But the good news is that some of the people who survived the 20th century pandemic um, only to suffer from symptoms like muscle rigidity and catatonia did eventually recover. 
And it was thanks to Oliver Sacks, the greatest Ooh. neurologist and writer uh, who ever lived, who could wear the hell out of a leather jacket. And <laughs> I'm going to make sure we link to that picture of him riding a motorcycle on popside.com slash weird. Um, so in the 1960s, uh, Oliver Sacks was treating several survivors of this sleepy sickness pandemic who were living in a nursing home in the Bronx. Um, and he noticed that while they were thought to be totally unresponsive, most of them showed like some kind of reaction to random bits of stimuli. Like one might reflexively catch things if, uh, you know, you tossed a, a soft object at them. Um, another person might react to mu music or touch. Um, so he decided he was going to try treating them with L-DOPA, which is an amino acid that's able to cross the blood-brain barrier and raise dopamine levels um, because it was improving symptoms in patients with Parkinson's at the time. And he was thinking, you know, the fact that these people are showing some responsiveness makes me think that maybe they're more like Parkinson's patients than like people who totally have like locked-in syndrome of some kind. Um, so the results were profound and shocking. Um, some of the patients regained consciousness and the ability to interact with the world after decades. Um, and that story is the subject of the book and film Awakenings, uh, which I definitely recommend, along with Oliver Sacks's work. Again, just an absolute king. Uh, R.I.P. We love him. So, yeah, takeaways. <laughs> Encephalitis Encephalitica is pretty spooky, and we don't know enough about it to say that we could keep it from coming back. Um, but there is one takeaway that we should remember, which is that illnesses that seem mild can cause all sorts of symptoms later. Um, so even if you don't care about the idea of getting COVID at this point or think it's important to stop the spread of it, um, just understand that you really don't know that your cold-like symptoms won't turn into something much scarier down the line. And I don't say that to like terrify people unnecessarily. I say that as someone who like that, that is what happened to me and to many people I know. Um, and like, listen, there are things you can do. Uh, wear a mask, don't get the plague if you can help it. Um, it'll, you'll probably be okay if you do, but like, don't like, don't like try to get it. Just, just, just be chill. Please. Everyone please just be chill. That's, that's my takeaway. <laughs> oh my God. So yeah, that's the, that's the sleepy sickness. Um, and yeah, I, for one, um, am very glad that uh, I did not just like literally uh, enter a, a rigid coma-like state for uh, years at a time. Knock on wood. Not yet anyway. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not... There's a lot of life left to catch the sleep sickness. <laughs> it puts things into perspective. <laughs> okay, um, let's take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Okay, we're back. And um, Sarah Kylie, on a lighter note, I hope, tell me, oh, yeah. tell me about a kitchen appliance girl boss. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. So this is um, something that I saw pop up over um, Women's or National Women's Month um, in March. And I just, I, I loved this story. So I, I'm going to tell it for you guys. But today um, we're talking about Josephine Cochran, um, who invented the dishwasher because she was so tired of washing dishes. That is the, that is the reason. She's so real for that. I know. Like, so this is, she is the girl boss of all girl bosses. She's the original. She is mother. But so basically, um, I mean, behind most inventions are really interesting people. Like there's always weird, creative people that are, you know, willed to bring devices into the world. Um, and it's especially true of the devices that we kind of take for granted, uh, like the dishwasher. And so you might not think about the dishwasher that much, but you are thinking about it when you don't have one. Oh, sure. Uh, as someone yeah. who has lived in many a dorm room where I've washed many a gross dish in the, the tiniest sink possible. <laughs> as somebody who currently does not have a diswa- dishwasher, yeah. It is oh, a condolences. Yeah, really, my condolences. Con- it's, well, listen, listen. It's not that bad because we have in-unit laundry. Okay. And, like, I would rather have in-unit laundry than a dishwasher. Like, I don't have to, like, go to, like, a laundromat or, like, hike to my basement and, like, put in, like, $2 that is of true. quarters every yeah. time I need to do a load of laundry. Like, I do get that for free, and that is worth it for me. But, um, but dishwashers, great invention. Big great thing. invention i mean if you had to like walk your dishes to the laundromat i just simply would eat off of dirty plates forever um <laughs> but yeah so washing dishes in any shape or form is a huge chore and back in the 1800s chores were a full-time job so things take a while to do now but they took even longer back then and uh josephine our our girl of the moment um she did not have the time for this um so this is the story of an invention not driven by much more um other than frustration so according to the u.s patent and trade office which did this great deep dive so shout out to them for letting me go through and read this long article and learn a lot um she was born march 8th um 1839 in ashtaluba county ohio So um, she was actually born with a little bit of engineering magic in her already. Um, She was the daughter and granddaughter of inventors and engineers. Her maternal grandfather was a Revolutionary War vet named um, John Fitch, and he invented the first patented steamboat in the United States. Oh, wow. We've already got big shoes to fill. And then her dad, John Garris, was a civil engineer who supervised a number of mills, um, wool mills, sawmills, and grist mills on the Ohio River. So so what I'm hearing is that they loved a big wheel in this family. this is, a, this is a family yeah. that is all about wheels, reinventing the wheels three different times. So very <laughs> crucial stuff. We love it. Um, but yeah, and 
Josephine is a woman. And in the 1800s, things in general just like weren't super fun for what? most women. Yeah, frowny face. Um, the first state to grant the vote to women wouldn't even do so until Josephine was 30. And she wouldn't even li- like live to see the 19th Amendment come around. Um, and at 19, she was already married to some guy named William Cochran. And William <laughs> really wanted to get rich off of the California gold rush. Um, but he, oh, didn't, he didn't make the cut. So he apparently um, moved to Illinois and they started selling dry goods. So, I mean, they're still, you know, doing their thing. But it wasn't it wasn't the gold rush. Um, but yeah, they lived a couple hours south of Chicago. And Josephine was a socialite and she was living it up. And she was hosting all these parties. And she had a collection of, quote unquote, heirloom dishes that dated back to the 1600s um but as nice china plates do they chip and this was stressing josephine out a lot she wouldn't even let her servants wash them after a while because she was so anxious about them and she understandably hated doing the dishes herself but she was like there's gonna be a better way to do this (laughs) that i don't have to do it and that i don't have to be stressed everybody in a group project where you're like (laughs) if i the josephine is just like if i do it like it'll be great like i just don't trust other people that's so real though like that's how i am in group projects sometimes and i like i've apologized to people i'm like hey Tell me if I'm like just being like trying to do too much. Like I don't, I don't, I don't have the time to worry about this. But <laughs> right, it takes less time to be to do it than to be stressed about it, which is right, I'm guessing right. yeah what was going on. But it was still taking too much time. Either of those options were too much time. Um, and so at this point, there actually was like a bad dishwasher um the first dishwashing device was patented in 1850 by joel houghton and it basically was like a big wood bucket that you could crank by hand and then water would spray on the dishes but like it didn't work so like we are already like okay we need to move past this and it was slow steampunk nerf gun really yeah like (laughs) i don't even want to think about like it sounds like broken dishes to me and it was slow and like cleaning the dishes with just spraying water and hoping for the best is just not it and another guy did it um la alexander who added a cranked rack system but it was still like pretty terrible and nobody was like trying to get the crank bucket washing machines um and josephine's nice china does not deserve to go through that so she's moving on she's putting she's figuring it out so that puts us around 1883 and what do you know, William, Mr. Failed Gold Rush, um, he dies and he leaves like $1,500, which is like $44,000 today, um, but also a bunch of debt. So Josephine is like, okay, um, I not only do I need to get these dishes washed, but I need some cash. <laughs> uh, so as, as one does, <laughs> um, she's like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. She went to like go and she was trying to find like some men to help her to do this because obviously being a a woman who's now got a dead husband and she's in debt and being an inventor it's a lot going on um and she went and like tried to get somebody to help her and nobody was really giving her the time of day she's quoted as saying i couldn't get men to do the things i wanted in my way until they had tried and failed on their own (laughs) and that was costly for me they knew I knew nothing academically about mechanics and they insisted on having their own way with my invention until they convinced themselves my way was better, no matter how I arrived at it. And so she filed her first patent on New Year's Eve, 1885. So nice. So again, she is just the, the true, the leader of the group project. So that is, <laughs> that is the dishwasher. So she gets to work in her woodshed um, behind her house with the help of like a mechanic named George Butters, which hello, amazing name. <laughs> um, 
And so here's how Josephine's invention worked. This is the first thing that she had. Um, she had a wooden wheel. So again, queen of the wheel um, that would lay flat in a copper boiler. And the wheel would be turned by hand or driven by a power source ver- via a pulley. And she made wire framed compartments that fit her dishes so they could be attached to the vice and really get the soapy, sudsy spinning water up in there. Um, and this was the first dishwasher to use water pressure, not scrubbers. And those older additions had often required dumping boiling water over the dishes, um, which we didn't have to do that anymore, which is thankful because, hello, why would dumping boiling water over anything, especially dishes, is all very stressful. And fast forward to Christmas of 1886, um, she got her patent. Woo! And when she was finding customers, she would have really liked to sell her wares to women directly. Um, but she ended up selling to larger institutions like hotels, restaurants, etc. And she had this kind of to say about women as customers. She had a lot of like really great, great quotes. So I'm just including as many as I possibly can. And so this one was profound. Um, when it comes to buying something for the kitchen that costs $75 or $100, a woman... Be- begins at once to figure out all the other things she could do with that money she hates dishwashing what woman does not but she has not learned yet to think of her time and comfort as worth money besides she isn't the deciding factor when it comes to spending comparatively large sums of money for the house so okay she went real deep with that one that women did not think about their time and comfort as worth money in the same way that men probably did at that time uh. so she was a little bummed that she couldn't sell directly to women but Nevertheless, she found hotels and restaurants and they ate it up. Her first buyer came through like a wealthy buddy of hers. And in 1887, she was introduced to the manager of Chicago's Palmer House, which was a big deal back in the day. Um, So a lot of, uh, I think it was like in like the 50s, the 1950s, it was like a celeb layover between New York and LA. So you've got like Frank Sinatra and people like that. Um, And in the late 1800s, rich folks actually like set up there to live permanently permanently like gossip girl which i love that fact um and the place is still up and running uh and it's apparently also where the first reference to brownie in the u.s is tied back to so like we've got yeah, celebrities there's like a plaque outside of of like of the hotel that's like this is where the brownie was invented or something like that <laughs> i don't remember exactly but i for some reason i knew that brownies in the palmer house were a thing Right. I mean, I didn't. I'm not, I have never, I've been to Chicago once and I was five. So this is all new to me. But yeah, the, the brownie recipe actually took off in the 1890s. So like theoretically, maybe the first brownie bakeware would have been washed with like Josephine's dishwasher, which I'm speculating, but like how great would that be? Like she needs a plaque as well. Um, but yeah, so she, so that was her first customer. And then she, the next stop was the Sherman House Hotel, which isn't there anymore. It was there from like the 1870s to the 1970s so unfortunately no brownie plaques or anything but she did do something very historic um at the time she went to that pitch that business pitch by herself unaccompanied by a man and she was like in her 50s at this point but she said it was the hardest thing she ever did and like so here here's another great quote from from our friend josephine you cannot imagine what it is like in those days for a woman across a hotel lobby alone i had never been anywhere without my husband or father the lobby seemed like a mile wide I thought I would faint at every step, but I didn't. And I got an $800 order as my reward. <laughs> so icon. She did it. Um, love that. And her company's rocking and rolling, but it's like, it's taken a little bit of time and things really blew up in 1893. Um, basically, there's a little bit of a like a, an economic um, 
weirdest thing in here. So 1893 was a big year because there was the panic of 1893. And so I'll get back to that in like one second. But basically, um, nobody, the big investors didn't want to invest in her because yeah, she, unless she handed over the company to a man, nobody was going to give her any money. So she was like, whatever, I'm just going to keep doing this. But in 1893, um, the Panic of 1893 happens, and um, this depression basically took down a bunch of heavily financed companies. So she was fine, and all these people that had been like snubbing her weren't. Um, so another win for Josephine. Um, and she went to the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Um, I think that's like where the first, like the original Ferris wheel was, and some stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, it uh, comes up on weird thing all the time because a lot of people rolled out stuff there. They'd really been saving it up for the World which- Exposition. Sounds so fun. I wish. Can we do that? I, I, mean, I know. I, I wish we. I it, like now we just have like CES, which is like a, a piss poor. Like no fun. Where's the Ferris wheel? I yeah. like want to go have a I hot agree. dog and look at like the like next like Dyson air wrap or whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, she went there and she got a ton of publicity and sales. Um, she had orders rolling in throughout Illinois and. and nearby states um places like hospitals and like colleges were really interested because they had to have these like strict um sanitization standards and stuff which um i guess is really great for the the original dishwasher um and by this time this is going to sound bananas but her largest dishwasher washer could wash and dry 240 dishes in two minutes so oh I'm like, where are these? <laughs> where are these? Yeah, Mine takes like what happened two hours on a good day if i like you know like say nice things to it so um <laughs> but yeah say a prayer to the dishwasher god yeah i'm gonna start like leaving like a candle burning for josephine so that my dishwasher <laughs> yeah. works well i mean yeah sorry not dishwasher god invented by a woman dishwasher goddess goddess excuse yes. me there we go but um in 1898 so this five years later she opens her first factory with um george butters as her manager so they stayed friends throughout all of this they were to continue to work together which is amazing um and so now yeah so we love we love a friendship story as well um and so it's now called cochran's crescent crescent washing machine company oh god that's one Cochrane's Crescent Washing Machine Company. And so they get these things like all over the place. They're in Alaska and Mexico, which I mean, thinking about it in like 1898. Yeah, imagine the shipping. Yeah, you're shipping a dishwasher in before like, uh, yeah, so bananas. Um, But they were still really expensive. So they weren't in houses yet. Um, They were $350, which at that time was a lot of money. So yeah, alas, not in kitchens of normal folks really yet. And you couldn't even really have one, even if you were super rich, because you probably didn't have a giant boiler, which it also uh. required, which is, I don't, less than ideal. Um, but yeah, so things are chugging along. The goddess of dishwashing is running along. Um, 15 years later, she's 74 and she dies in Chicago. Um, but she received a second posthumous patent in 1917 for an improved version of her dishwasher. And her dishwasher got like the a trademark for like the crescent moon that um was their logo a couple years later and then a little bit after that um hobart manufacturing acquires this company and they now produce the dishwashers under KitchenAid and the rest is kind of history and now wow. we now we kind of just have dishwashers everywhere and so yeah dishwashers are ubiquitous and it's all thanks to one very frustrated and determined socialite who is tired of doing the dishes all the time 
And um, in a quote, like towards the end of her life, she basically was like, I would have never had the courage to start if anyone told me how rough this would have been, but I'm really <laughs> glad I did it, which is also just like iconic. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, that's, she's that's saying, the dishwasher she said story. What everybody was thinking. She really said <laughs> what everybody was thinking. Like, <laughs> this woman was ahead of her time in so many ways. Um, but yeah, so here's to Josephine, the very frustrated, tired girly who hates dishes hates washing dishes she's also she really is um a hashtag girl boss because crucially she had the money to pay other people to do her dishes and just was like they're not doing it good enough so (laughs) i applaud josephine for um actually doing something productive with that energy um for channeling it into entrepreneurial spirit but i am really feeling for her uh domestic staff being like <laughs> it's probably it was rough <laughs> sounds like a capricorn oh what is she she's march 8th what's march 8th is that um um is she pisces ooh, pisces pisces yes i guess that makes sense with the water though <laughs> so ah uh, water sign only a water sign she's definitely got some dishwasher. capricorn in the chart like this is capricorn behavior I get really sure. e- angry emails from men whenever we talk about astrology on Weirdest Thing, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying hi to them <laughs> preemptively. I don't know much about Let astrology. Let people like things. I know my own <laughs> signs. I know because people always ask. I don't know what it means. If anybody wants to tell me what being an Aquarius means, go for oh, it. Oh, I'm also an Aquarius. Oh, I'm an Aquarius too, Let's and go. so is Rachel. That'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Let's go. There you go. Here we are. Aquarius, the weird fact being an Aquarius wizards. means you get to go on the Weirdest Thing podcast. <laughs> Pretty <Fun> much. Fact. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And uh, Jack, tell me about people racing to the bottom. Okay, so before we get to people digging very deep holes, I do need to do a little bit of background information about like the earth because geology (laughs) as a field is weirdly recent. Like I didn't, I didn't really like understand how recent it was until I started like doing research for the original story that I like found this fact through and then for this for this but geology like dude they the the geologists like did not know anything about the earth until like maybe (laughs) the 1900s they were just like all (laughs) making guesses like so before this croatian guy um who i will talk about they they were just like earthquakes happen okay cool um, and so he starts, so this guy, um, his name is Mohoro, Mohoro, Mohorovicic, Andreas. Wow. Yeah. Um, we'll co- put a pin in that, put a pin in Mohorovicic. We'll come back to him, um, in terms of what geologists now call his namesake, um, his namesake discontinuity. But Mohorovicic is a Croatian, like earthquake seismologist, I guess, geologist. Um, and he's working in the early ninth or the early twentieth century, uh, researching you know earthquakes. And he noticed he's like looking at the waves, the seismic waves that are produced by the earthquakes. And he's like looking at the refractory patterns because um, waves travel at different speeds through materials of different density. And he notices this really big like 
shift. And he's like, yo, I can find out where that shift is. That's really weird. Like, why is there a shift? Like, how deep is it? Blah, 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 blah. And he goes on and he finds this thing called the Mohorovicic discontinuity, which geologists just now call the Moho because Mohorovicic <laughs> is clearly. a Clearly. <laughs> of course they um, do. So the Moho is essentially the boundary between the crust of the earth and the mantle of the earth. That's like the best way to think about it. It's not like, I mean, you know, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk geologists, I'm sure, are like, fighting me in the comments already being like not always not always <laughs> yes in general the Mohorovicic is the boundary between the crust and the earth in like the outer layer right so in the earth you have the crust then the outer mantle then the inner mantle then the outer core then the inner core um, and if you look on popularscience.com you can find a story about the innermost inner core um, written by yours truly uh, so Essentially, like so the geologists are like, okay, cool, we have this thing, but they're still like trying to figure out what's at the center, like what makes up the earth, you know, they're like using the magnetic field to figure out, okay, there's probably like iron and nickel, but like what is actually, what is it like? What are the temperatures? What are the materials there? Um, and so this is why like the density thing is important is because, you know, since the material is more dense, there's also probably going to be a change in the rock and the change in the material. Um, and so then fast forward to like the late 1950s, um, and sci this is when plate tectonics, like the theory of plate tectonics is just starting to like take hold in the geological community. That is correct. Scientists did not really understand that continents and plate tectonics were like just shifting about until the 1950s. That's like when it was confirmed. So in 57, there's a scientist, Walter Monk. Uh, at San Diego's Scripps Institution of Oceanography, my hometown. Love it. Uh, and he suggests this idea of, hey, what if we drilled into the Moho? Like, what if we got all the way down to the mantle? Like, what would we find? You know, because before this, really the only way that scientists had to figure out what was at the center of the mantle was a lot of guesswork using these seismic waves and just kind of praying that when a volcanic eruption happened, that like rock from the mantle would just kind of get spit out and they just like go to volcanic sites <laughs> after eruptions and be like, I wonder if that rock's from the mantle. <laughs> what? So yeah, I, I, literally, like, I don't know, man. Science. Geology is a lot of guesswork. So yeah, Walter, Walter is like, he goes to a couple other scientists who are kind of trying to push this theory of plate tectonics. He says, okay, what if we drill into the Moho discontinuity? I think that this will help us prove plate tectonics. Um, and they kind of agree. And so in the early 1960s, at the same time that the Soviets are putting up Sputnik and JFK gives the, hey, we're going to go to the moon speech, um, there's a group of scientists funded by Congress in the U.S. that are attempting to drill down into the mantle, so thus beginning kind of the race for the bottom. So this is called Project Mohole. No. Really clever. Oh, my God. Yeah. Agreed. No. Agreed. I, like, spent, like, a good, like, two minutes thinking about whether it was Mohole because it they drilled off the coast of Hawaii or Mohole, and then I was like, it's it's Moho and Hole. It's Moho and Hole. <laughs> the worst um, pun. The worst. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. 
Um, so yeah, this is like 1961, 1962. Um, and there's a bunch of infighting in the scientists because there are scientists on the West Coast at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography and there are scientists on the East Coast at like Princeton and uh, the University of Miami, like citing about like, hey, where do we drill? They knew they had to do this in the ocean because if you drill on land, you know, you have like a bunch of different, you know, there's a lot more earth to drill through. Yeah, it's a little lumpy. It's a lot more earth to drill through to get to the Moho discontinuity. So they knew they were going to do this in water. They're deciding where to do it. They eventually decide on the site outside of Hawaii and they they start drilling. Um, and uh, famed author John Steinbeck goes there to oh cover God. this for Life magazine. Not not making any of this up. It's 100% true. And they actually made it like relatively far into the preliminary studies. So, right, they, they decide, okay, we're going to do this off the coast of Hawaii, and they start drilling holes. You know, they're like 10,000, 11,000 feet under the sea level already, and then they'll drill another borehole that's like, 600 feet below the 11,000 feet in preliminary testing. And a bunch of oil companies start looking at this and go, oh, hey, we have technology that could be useful here. I wonder if there's oil in the ocean. Um, And so that's where deep oil drilling comes from. But this is actually like a great success. Like strangely, this is one of the only times I think that an American funded scientific project was like under budget and like worked. (laughs) So they, they do this preliminary testing. Yeah, right. They do this preliminary testing at the same time that the space race is just starting to heat up. And as one might imagine, the concept of going to the moon is a little bit more interesting to Congress than <laughs> drilling into the mantle. And so between Congress and a bunch of other scientific squabbles and a couple bad contractors... Uh, the project is eventually canceled in like 1966, which uh. brings us to the other side of the race to the bottom, the USSR. At the same time that the space race is happening, at actually just about towards the very end of the space race this time, because presumably the USSR had looked at Project Mohol and gone, well, this started really well and they looked like they were going to do great things and that it all fell apart. They said, well, how far can we get? Instead of drilling this in the water, they said, well, you know what? We're just going to do this on land and see how it goes. So on the Kola Peninsula of Russia, so if you think of like Europe, you have like the Scandinavia Peninsula, like Scandinavia and then kind of like on the other side, there's another small peninsula over there. It's called the Kola Peninsula. And they are like, well, we're going to use this machinery that oil companies have been using for decades. And we're just going to see how deep we get, we can get. So they start drilling in the Kola Peninsula. And they eventually make it down uh, not 11,000 feet, but 11,000 meters Dang. Um, before a drill bit breaks. Okay. And they're like, oh, God. So essentially, the way this works is you have this, like, you know, nine-inch hole <laughs> that is just incredibly deep. And you have this, like, very large drill bit that they've just kind of, like, slowly shoved down there, I imagine. 
And as they get further and further, they're like pulling up core samples. They find a bunch of hydrogen gas that they weren't expecting. One like report described like the 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 mud that was coming out of the hole as like bubbling with hydrogen gas. <laughs> they found a bunch of plankton, like microscopic plankton, plankton like deeper than they expected to, which was a shock. Um, they found water deeper than they expected to. So they did learn a lot, um, but they're like drilling this hole. And as you go down, you start to realize at a certain point in time, you're going to hit rock that's like just not cooperating. And so at this point in time, they decide, OK, well, we have to like change our angles slightly. So instead of like being just like one hole straight down, it's kind of like a tree of like related holes, like off of one main <laughs> hole. So there's a bunch of like very slightly angled side shoots so that they can avoid the rock that they can't drill through. Um, and over the course of about 20 years, they make it to a final depth of 12,262 meters, which is 40,230 feet in 1989. And as they get deeper, they they keep stopping to like celebrate like they break 12,000 meters for the first time and they like stop drilling for a year to celebrate and <laughs> oh then they God. like start drilling again and the drill bit breaks and they're like oh, god <laughs> we have to start we have to like drill another hole off the side um so when they get down to this kind of deepest point they're expecting the temperatures to be like about 100 degrees celsius boiling point of water 212 fahrenheit instead they find it like oven temperature we're talking like what 200 200 180 degrees celsius a 350 degrees fahrenheit and like okay well we gotta stop because at this point the rock is behaving more like this kind of like amorphous plasticky thing than rock so they're like okay we gotta give up now still a very valiant effort so they start drilling a couple other holes and but they never make it deeper than this 40,230 feet hole uh and that is as deepest that we have drilled to this day it is not like the longest borehole i think there are a couple oil wells that have like drilled horizontally for longer but it is very deep uh my favorite part of this story is that there are a couple pictures online of the hole, which is now since been like like welded shut, and it's just like a hole surrounded by a bunch of rubble. Like it looks completely normal. Like if you <laughs> if you walked on, you were like, uh, it's a hole. <laughs> it it it's just the de- it just happens to be the deepest hole in the world. Um, and my other favorite, uh, part of this story is that just because of like I guess the spectacle of it all in terms of like we are drilling into the center of the earth uh somebody kind of came up with the idea that like this is like the hole to hell or whatever sure and you know if you like drill deep enough you'll be able to like hear the screams of the damned being tortured and so there's a whole yeah there's like a whole horror movie that came out in russia pretty recently about the based around this idea not not the mohol. This is this is that was the US The Russian Mohol. But about the Russian one in the Kola Peninsula. So the Kola the Kola super deep borehole, it is called. Super deep. Um it is indeed super <laughs> deep. Uh, 
but yeah this like hole to hell uh you, you know you can hear the screams of the damned because it's so deep they drilled into hell and there's a whole horror movie about oh what if they actually did drill into hell so that is the deepest hole uh the u.s <laughs> may have won the space race but the soviets won the, the deepest hole competition deepest competition wow there have been a couple efforts after the cola hole was closed um to kind of like make it to the moho discontinuity um none have really succeeded as of yet so we're still kind of hoping for more direct samples of the mantle but until then geologists will keep relying on rocks spewing out of volcanoes that might be from the mantle <laughs> man science is wild <laughs> yeah that's yeah. special the deepest hole. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? A lot of good stuff. I'm definitely putting a in a stuff. vote for the mohole. Yeah, be, I'll think be thinking about that for a while. If only because it's called the mohole. <laughs> <laughs> That's the weirdest thing I learned this week. No, but um, truly, uh, like, it's it's... That hole is shockingly deep, and yet it's still shocking to me that that's the deepest we've ever gone. Um, there's right, a lot right. of earth below that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I think about like what if they had started digging like over water? Like obviously, you know, there's there's water to deal with, but could they actually have made it to the mantle or were well, they only able to get that far because they were over land? Yeah, then they would have actually reached hell. So Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Jack, thanks so much for coming on. Um where can our listeners find you if they want to read more of your stories or offer you gainful employment? <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, you can go to popularscience.com to read some of my stories. Uh, I am on Twitter at It's Jack Izzo, I-T-S-J-A-C-K-I-Z-Z-O. Um, and yeah, I think I'm, I'm also on tiktok as something else but i don't know that i want to give my tiktok out <laughs> fair enough <laughs> the weirdest thing i learned this week is produced by all of our hosts including me rachel faltman along with jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire our theme music is by billy cadden our logo is by katie belloff if you have questions suggestions or weird stories to share tweet us at weirdest underscore thing thanks for listening weirdos Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh.